Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. Today we begin a special three-part series examining themes from the book of James regarding the Christian response to various trials. In these difficult and uncertain times throughout our world, the Bible has timely and practical instruction to help us experience God's blessings, even in the darkest hours. Today we will consider the special role of prayer in response to trials. I want to open today's episode with a less formal and more personal note. As I record this, the world is going through an unprecedented turmoil. Nations across the globe, including the United States of America, are suddenly in a condition the like of which has not been seen for more than a hundred years. I'm not an economist or a medical doctor. I hold no specialized degrees in sociology or government, so I can offer very little of value to the crisis as a whole. My special concern at this moment is for my brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom are at this very time suffering from the dreadful COVID-19 virus and their loved ones who are concerned for them, as well as others who are reeling from the sudden and cataclysmic social changes that have utterly uprooted our way of life and faced us with the challenge to our religious practice and expression, which none of us were frankly prepared to face. For this reason, I want to consider some semi-exegetical studies that I hope will be helpful to us in this difficult time. The Epistle of James is part of a very special genre of biblical literature, which we might call persecution literature. We'll talk more about the concept of persecution in just a moment, but this letter, along with letters like 1 Peter and Hebrews, were written to Christians undergoing severe challenges to their faith. They're not merely instruction manuals on how to live the Christian life, but they are divine directions on how to continue living it when the world turns against you in one way or another. The particular letter of James was one of the earliest, perhaps the first, of all New Testament books to be completed in its final form. It was written by the brother of Jesus called James the Just or James the Elder because he served as one of the pastors of a congregation in Jerusalem. He knew about persecutions. He had seen his own congregation lose members to martyrdom arrest, and flight. In fact, his greeting indicates that perhaps those to whom he wrote had once been a part of the flock he helped to shepherd. Now they were far away, and maybe they had called out to him for his wisdom. The Spirit of God saw fit that his words to them would be included in the library of New Testament Scripture, even for our benefit today. And that means that James's words are not only inspired and inerrant, but they perfectly capture what God wants us to know about these matters in just the right way to sufficiently teach us the truth. Throughout the course of his letter, James identifies some of the hardships that his audience faced. They were being taken to court unfairly. 
by powerful men and before unrighteous judges who would not give them an equitable trial. Evil was spoken of them in the community by powerful and influential people. They were defrauded of their wages by their employers, and it is possible, according to at least one passage, that in some cases Christians had been killed. Some of these difficulties are hard for us to imagine. These are challenges to our faith we've never experienced. But surely the events of the last months have taught us that just because we have not seen it before does not mean that it cannot happen. However, in this case, James informs us that what he says to these people in these circumstances has a much broader application. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word trials can also be translated either test or temptation. But those two words have a drastically different sense of meaning. Later in James 1, verses 13 through 15, we're going to learn that God never tempts us to do evil, but God often tests us to improve our character. Temptation is the work of the devil. Testing is the work of God. But here, James uses the generic and amoral trial to simply mean the difficult and challenging circumstances of life. Anything that upsets life or causes life to lose its comforts normalcy, and stability. He speaks of various trials because he means to include all of them. The letter itself may be dealing with an issue of persecution, but James's words reach far beyond cases of persecution. Now, I think it's a good time here to ask the question, what does it mean to be persecuted? This is important because there are some teachings in the Bible that have special and exclusive reference to how Christians should respond to persecution, and they do not properly apply to every other situation. A persecution is when a powerful force, usually an authority, sets itself against Christians because of our faith or because of the truths we affirm, such as when the Sadducees persecuted the apostles for preaching the resurrection. They opposed the resurrection because they denied it, and wherever belief in it grew, their influence as a matter of course waned. The resurrection is, of course, a vital part of the gospel, so they opposed the Christian faith in such a way that would and could never be remedied. There was no way for the Christians to cooperate with their demands without vitally, essentially, compromising their loyalty to Christ. The same was true when the Roman emperors persecuted Christians for refusing to worship them, or when some of the other Jewish leaders persecuted Christians for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, or that the law of Moses is not binding on the Gentiles. Persecution is not simply being told to do something, or told not to do something. When the doctor tells you that you need to stay home and rest because you're sick, he is not persecuting you. When a police officer gives you a ticket for speeding, even if you are driving to church, he is not persecuting you. When we have not been targeted for our faith, 
Whatever our trials may be called, and however difficult and challenging and adverse they may be, they are not persecution, at least not the sort to which the teachings of the Bible about persecution in particular would apply. However, James says that what he wants Christians to learn here applies just as well in trials of non-persecution as in trials of persecution. Anything from a flat tire to a terminal illness, from an economic depression to a global pandemic. And he further stresses this point when he says that these are situations we fall into. This is the same word used to describe the man from the parable of the Good Samaritan who was walking down the road and fell among thieves. This means we may not deserve the situation. It does not necessarily reflect God's approval or disapproval of us. It just happened because we live in a world where bad and difficult and hard things just happen. We live in a world where towers fall where evil men do evil things and there are dreadful consequences, where diseases form and spread and many people die. How does James tell us to respond to various trials, great or small? He says, count it all joy. This is an intense statement, even more so than I think that translation gets across. It means consider it the fullest of joy, or nothing but joy. There are dozens of parallels, quotations, echoes, and allusions in James's epistle to the sermons on the mountain plain that Jesus taught in the Gospels, and this seems to be one. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 through 23, when speaking about suffering persecution for righteousness' sake, Jesus said, "'Blessed are you when men hate you,' And when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. The instruction to count it all joy is, in the words of Jesus, a command to rejoice with exceeding joy, to celebrate with dancing and cheering. But how can that be? That seems like an insane reaction to any difficult situation, and yet James commands us to react that way to every difficult situation. Of course, we who believe Jesus and James his servant know that what God says often sounds foolish to carnal ears, but to ears of faith, the meaning may be discerned easily enough. James is not commanding that we have some sort of sick, masochistic delight in pain. Rather, he is informing us that there are special blessings God will give us through our various trials so that after we've finished our moment of frustration and weeping, and understand that frustration and weeping are not evil. It is not a sin to cry. It is not unchristian to be sorrowful in a moment of adversity and difficulty. But the Apostle Paul said, We sorrow not as others who have no hope. We have a sorrow that in the morning can be turned into joy. And this is what James is talking about. After we have finished the moment of weeping, 
we can praise God that even in the bad times, He is good to us. Now, how all of this works is both fascinating and thrilling, and I want to explore what James has to say about it for the next couple of weeks. But to start today, we want to consider the role of prayer in this divine process of turning trials into opportunities for blessing. What do we pray for when trials come? Most of us pray for deliverance, for the trial to just end and be gone. Now, there's nothing wrong with this prayer. Jesus asked God in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, verse 39, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus not only prayed in this way for himself, but for others, and he taught his disciples to do the same thing in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. However, for Jesus, we need to recognize it was not an immature prayer. It was not a condition he was placing on serving God, demanding that God change the circumstances in order for the relationship to continue, because Jesus followed up the request with these remarkable words, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If we ask God for deliverance, are we prepared to ask like Jesus did? And if God does not deliver us, what then? Then perhaps we ask God for strength to endure. And this would not be wrong or wicked either. The Bible is full of cases when men and women were in moments of great trial and stress, and they prayed to God for strength. In fact, on this very occasion, while God did not remove the cup, he did send an angel to provide Jesus with the strength for the task before him, according to Luke twenty-two forty-three, And you recall that Jesus told the apostle Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed to God that your faith fail not. When we read the words of James, however, he does not simply call on us to cry out to God, hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of your hand, keep me safe till the storm passes by. That is a fine and acceptable and appropriate petition. And I really believe James expects that we will be praying that in the background. But he says, count it all joy, because he wants us to know there is an even higher level for prayer in times of trial. Sometimes when people talk about this sort of theme, they speak in such vague and shadowy expressions that they make unbelievers of their audience by sending them on a quest for some secret meaning in every tragedy. That's not what James is saying at all. Listen to his explanation. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says that trials, especially those which touch our faith in God and Jesus Christ, give us the opportunity to practice patience, or more accurately, endurance. That's a blessing in itself, because through the endurance of trials— we may develop our spiritual character. We can become more like Jesus. We can reach spiritual maturity. This is the idea in becoming perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials provide a unique opportunity for God to purge out the dross of our bad attitudes, 
of all that remains of sin from our old life, as James says in chapter 1, verse 21, and to form Christ in us. And frankly, without trials, if it is possible for us to make this progress, it will be much more difficult and much more grueling and fraught with much more failure and disappointment. Trials give an opportunity for the unique involvement of God for a more intense and more efficacious work in our lives. However, prayer is a vital feature here. James says in 1 and verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, when James mentions wisdom here, he's giving a sample of the sort of thing we can ask God to give us through the trial. You could substitute some other aspect of Christian character, self-control, gentleness, faith, love, joy, etc., and the point would work just as well. James is challenging us to react counterintuitively when trials, difficult situations, come upon us. Our normal response is to look for someone to blame or to look for a way out. But James encourages us to look within ourselves, to be introspective, not because we're trying to figure out why this is happening to us. There is probably no deep, meaningful reason It's probably simply the fact that we live in a broken and messed up world. James is saying, look at yourself, see what you lack, because you can always grow, and it will always be a blessing to you to grow. So ask God to use the trial as a crucible to purge out your bad attitudes and negative attributes and give you the good qualities that you need. This is a different way of praying than most people are used to, but it can turn any trial into an occasion for joy. The mechanics of how God works out the impartation of this requested character development are left unrevealed. It is somehow according to his mighty power. As William Cowper masterfully wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform, He plants his footsteps on the deep and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. James says that for our prayer to be effective... We must ask in faith. This carries two meanings. First, that we believe God is great. It will be given. Second, that we believe God is good. He gives to all liberally and without reproach. God loves us. He wants to bless us. And he is mighty and powerful to do all that needs to be done. If we keep this in mind, 
we can trust that even the most grim and dreadful situation can become a channel of blessing. The second idea here regards the willingness of the man or woman to receive the blessing asked for. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Remember that we are asking God to make us more like Jesus, but that won't often make life easier. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus said. And if the world hated him, it will hate us when we become more like him. If the world nailed him to a cross, it may nail us to a cross when we take upon ourselves his character and attributes. Therefore, this request actually runs against the request to be delivered from the trial. It may result in more trials. So James says, do not be double-minded, two-souled. Do not have half of your heart in this world and half of your heart in heaven. Leave no trace of your affections in Sodom like Lot's wife lest you turn around and be destroyed. That man will not receive anything. One final point at the end of his epistle, James acknowledges that prayer often needs company. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. To this point, he speaks to individuals about how each one can face good and bad times and keep God at the forefront of his or her life, but then he shifts to a darker scene. Is anyone among you sick? Now, the sickness here is not physical. The word in the epistles always refers to weakness, discouragement of a spiritual nature, in this case, the trials of life are leading a man away from God into sin. James says to this one, Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The anointing with oil is most likely a metaphor for spiritual encouragement through prayer, counseling, and Bible study. We don't have time to make a detailed case for that interpretation. That's for another study. But what I want you to see is that when you are spiritually sick, social distancing is not a good thing. You need your brethren, you need your elders, your shepherds to anoint your head with oil and prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies and restore your soul. Please consider this. We're living in a strange time when, for the first time in many of our lives, our freedom and ability to assemble is being disturbed or removed. But as precious and integral to the Christian system as the assembly is, 
The church does not only consist of what we do in the assembly. There is love to be shown, strength to be shared, edification to be offered. There are prayers to be prayed and songs to be sung in other settings also. Trials can become opportunities for blessing and great spiritual growth, occasions for joy. If we look inward, trust God, call for help when we are in need, and just ask. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and